0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Five. Those of you who haven't been with us, just so you know, we are going through the book of Acts, beginning to end. We're actually nearing the finish line here. We begin chapter 25. Today we'll be looking at chapter 25, verses 1 through 12. If you want to flip there, follow along. Also, if you've got a bulletin, of the day the bulletin has an outline, if that is helpful for you, that you can follow along with, as we'll be looking through the passage, practical lessons. Uh, To set the context, especially if you haven't been here, we are looking at an overview of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, who had a ministry that extended almost 30 years as a missionary and church planter, as well as a pastor, an apostle, an evangelist, And his ministry now is nearing a close in the book of Acts. Right now, he is on trial. He's been arrested. He's been chained. He's been thrown in prison, incarcerated. Been on trial a few times already. And so, we're going to be looking at another trial. Uh, The title of the sermon is Paul's Trial Before Festus. Festus, a governor. We haven't met him yet, Festus but we'll learn a little bit about Festus. So, Paul's going to go on trial before the governor of that area at the time, which included Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the way over to Caesarea on the coast where actually the governor, Festus, resided in the palatial palace that was built by Herod the Great who came before him. And the Romans took over that facility and Now we're occupying it themselves, and that's where Festus is reigning. Now before we get to Acts 25, Paul's on trial, he's a prisoner, he's been sitting in a cell for two years, it's 59 AD, that date pretty solid, pretty accurate, based on a lot of sources, including the book of Acts itself and chronology that's given there by historical figures. Josephus is a very helpful writer. Josephus makes reference very specifically to Festus and Felix and the governor who came after Festus, Albinus. So, we can be pretty certain this happened around 59 A.D. Now, if this happened in 59 A.D. where Paul's on trial, that means he got saved in about 35 A.D., So it's been 20 plus years since he got saved. I want to read, as we begin Acts chapter 9, just by way of reminder, what happened when Paul got saved. The Lord Jesus confronted him from heaven. He was a Christian killer. Uh, Jesus confronted him, challenged him, blinded him, called him to repentance. Paul responded and got saved and became a Christian. And then immediately Jesus commissioned Paul personally to be an apostle representative of him told him what his mission would be, and also with this promise, which is amazing. So this is around 35 A.D., Acts chapter 9, uh, he, he saves him, uh, he falls to the ground, uh, and then the Lord Jesus says that he will be my vessel. This is in Acts chapter 9, Verse 15. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. The Apostle Paul is a chosen instrument of mine. He is unique. He is different. He is distinct. He's an apostle. He's not an ordinary Christian in terms of what he's being called to do and some of the spiritual gifts he will be given to do them with. That's why I cannot do the things the Apostle Paul did. He was unique. God didn't love him more than you or me. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about his calling, his function, his role, and some of the gifts that he's been given to carry that out. So he's unique. He's a chosen instrument of mine. To to do what? To bear my name. Full time. This is what he will do as an apostle, evangelist, pastor, church planner. He will bear my name before the Gentiles. That was unique and distinct. Peter and the apostles of Jerusalem weren't doing that. They were primarily in Jerusalem with the Jews. I will use Paul to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth to Gentiles, to non-Jews. Which Non-Jews, that would be most of us here today. So, he will carry my name before the Gentiles, which we've seen him do that for almost 30 years now. Not only that, he will, he will bear my name before kings. He will bear my name before kings. This was a promise Jesus made 35 That hasn't really happened yet. It's going to happen in chapter 25. Amazing. 25 years later, to the T, it's going to be fulfilled. Um. And that was a promise from Jesus. Also, he goes on, I will show him how much he must suffer for my names. That will be typical of the calling of the Apostle Paul. He will carry my name. He will be faithful. He'll go to the Gentiles. He'll go to many audiences, uh, low and high, including kings and governors and judges. And he will suffer. He will suffer. And that's been typical of Paul. He suffered everywhere he went. And that was, God knew it was going to happen. He warned the Apostle Paul. And Paul, in his faithfulness and love for the Lord Jesus Christ, um, I I will, I will suffer for the Lord Jesus. I would even die for Christ. He said that, we saw that earlier. I would even die for Jesus if that's what he calls me to do. So, I just wanted you to see that background, to be reminded of it, that uh, specific prophecies are being fulfilled of the audiences that he is going to entertain here. Governors and kings, we see that in chapter 25, and ongoing suffering for the name of Christ. So, let's go ahead and look at this, Paul's trial. Uh, before Festus. I uh, broke it up into five uh, points here. It's just a narrative. It's very short. It's very simple and straightforward. And it's actually a typical kind of a trial And that it's got all the elements. It's got a designated judge with authority. That would be Governor uh, Festus. There's a courtroom setting, the prosecution is allowed to give testimony and bring charges. The defense is allowed to speak on his behalf. And then theoretically a verdict is to be rendered and given and implemented. That's, supposed, that's standard. That's justice. It's supposed to happen. That did not happen with Felix, the previous governor we saw in chapter 24, where he had a formal trial, heard the case, heard Paul's accusers, heard Paul, had the evidence, was knowledgeable knew the right answer, knew Paul was not guilty and prostituted, perverted undermined undermine justice by not rendering the proper, by rendering no verdict, by not rendering the proper verdict. He knew Paul was not guilty. Paul was not worthy of any crimes that deserved to be in prison or to be put to death. And so what did Felix do? He perverted and prostituted justice, didn't give a verdict and just procrastinated, put Paul in prison. For two years, and at the end of chapter 24, verse 27, why did he leave Paul in prison? Why did he not render a verdict? Why did he not say he was guilty? Why did he not condemn him to death or have him whipped with lashes? Why did he just put it off? Because he was a coward, and we talked about that last week, and wasn't interested in justice. He was only interested in what he could get out of things. He wanted a favor from Paul. He wanted to be bribed with money. But he also says in verse 27, he was also looking to uh, find favor with the Jews. Felix, wishing to do the Jews a favor Felix left Paul in prison, and we know Felix was recalled by Nero. Nero was relatively new as the emperor of Rome at the time. When we think of Nero, typically those of us who know history think bad, evil, wicked, the beast, which he eventually became. Nero ruled from 54 AD to 68. Eight. And what's kind of interesting in history, from 54 to 59, 54 to 59, Nero, as the new Caesar in Rome, was not a bad uh, emperor after all, actually. He ruled with, for the most part, integrity, justice, consistency with the law. Many people called those first five years uh, a miniature golden age of Rome under Nero. So the Apostle Paul, he knew who the king was, he knew who Caesar was, he knew it was Nero. Nero wasn't a bloodthirsty killer yet by way of reputation. Paul kind of heard that, oh, I think Nero, he's a a just Caesar. He's a just emperor. I appeal to him. I want to go here before him, which is kind of interesting. Uh, And we do know from history that from 54 to 59 A.D., Nero was tutored and mentored by a man named Seneca. who was very influential in his life, in a good way. Seneca just happened to be the brother of Gallio. Paul faced Gallio in a court setting in Acts 18 in 51 AD, if you remember when we were in the book of Acts. And Gallio ruled in Paul's favor when the Jews were trying to kill him. So this could be Paul's thinking. I appeal to Caesar... I want justice. we're going to see that but so let's go and look at this account of Paul being on uh, on trial again with this new governor named Felix. we left off at the end of verse 27 where Paul was left in prison Felix was recalled by Nero because Felix uh, there was an uprising shortly after at the end of Felix's reign between Jews and Gentiles in Caesarea actually, according to history and there was a an insurrection that rose up and Felix reacted and tried to stomp it out and he did it uh, too harshly as he typically did and shed all kinds of blood, even innocent blood, created a mess and the Jews revolted, reacted and they had a lot of influence and power and they appealed to Rome and got <laughs> Felix fired. That's how much sway they had in that area, the leadership of the Jews. So Felix got recalled, Felix got polled, he was replaced by this man named Festus Festus, no doubt, he's the new governor taking over the role. He, he knows how he got there. Wow, my predecessor got pulled. He got fired. It was by the Jews. Uh, he had a little bit of a knowledge about the history of the Jews, that they were a threat. They were small, few people, but they were very influential. Uh, they could even uh, manipulate Rome and Caesar and whatever they had to, to undermine local Roman governors and procurators based on history. So you got this new governor coming in named Festus who has a little, he's a little unsettled about this area where he's ruling King Festus. We're going to see that in a second. But one comment on, I mentioned last week, the Apostle Paul was in prison for two years there in Caesarea. And Felix said, well, you know what, give him some freedom. His friends can come and visit him. And so for two years, no doubt, Paul's friends did come freely and visit him. And we know Luke was there. Luke the physician, Luke his friend, Luke who is uh, dominant in the last part of the book of Acts, Luke the Gentile, Luke the historian, Luke the doctor, and Luke is with Paul, and Luke is visiting Paul on a regular basis during that two years he's in prison. And other believers, no doubt, from around the world are getting to visit Paul. Did you know Paul's in prison? Boy, he's been there indefinitely. It's been a long time. Maybe you should come see him, and many probably did. But we do know during that two-year period, Paul didn't write any New Testament epistles that ended up in the Bible. He may have written letters, other letters, to churches that uh, don't exist today and didn't get in the Bible as he's encouraging saints. But for two years, so he wasn't totally idle. Probably a time to be refreshed, get perspective, spend time in prayer, be with his friends. I also think it was a very important time where Luke was getting a lot of information from Paul and collecting and collating a lot of data so that he could put together what would eventually become the book of Acts. Because a lot of the events that happen in Acts chapter 1 all the way up to about Acts 16, Luke was not a first-hand witness. He didn't see any of it. It was all hearsay. He had to get it from other eyewitnesses, the apostle Paul, Philip. Uh, the saints in Jerusalem, and so no doubt uh, during this time maybe Luke took advantage of that and spent a lot of time with Paul, getting firsthand testimony of what he knew and then going and visiting saints and putting this all together, writing and composing the, book of, the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts because we do know from history uh, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke around 60 to 61 A.D., which is exactly when Paul's prison sentence was over, and then right after that he wrote the book of Acts. So, that two years actually was very fruitful, providential time that God gave to Luke, to Paul, and to their ministry partners. Well, with that background, let's go ahead and look at it. Now, uh, two years has passed, and now there's a new governor, and let's go ahead and look at Paul's trial. First, the judge, and that's just verse 1. Festus, therefore, having arrived in the province in Caesarea, where his headquarters were, so he arrives, he's newly appointed. He's a novice from what we know, unlike Felix who had four years of ruling in Samaria, getting familiar with the Jews and all the idiosyncrasies of their religion, and then five years in Caesarea, so almost ten years of interacting with the Jews. Felix was rather savvy, informed, knowledgeable, experienced, so he could handle these intramural squabbles between Jewish people and their religion and what they believe about the Old Testament, Paul versus the Pharisees and Sadducees. He was well versed in that. Festus is totally new. He's a novice. He doesn't have experience. He, as far as we know, he never spent any time with the Jews, so their religion probably totally foreign to him for the most part. Doesn't understand it. So it's a challenge. But he goes there. But he does know that he has to curry favor with the leadership in that area, which would be the Sanhedrin of Jerusalem, the Jews who are in power, who hate Paul, and he knows the history. He knows. Uh, the Maccabeans and their revolt against Greece and against Rome and the, just the, the history of uprising and tumults and insurrection that typified the Jews in that land if people offended them. Like Pilate, when he came into Temple, remember Pontius, Pilate was the governor there as well. And when he got hired and came there and served in that land, he came with all his pomp and circumstance and all of his idols and everything else uh, plastered all over his body with an army, and he tried to march right into Jerusalem and near the temple with that, and the Jews, they just about took him out. Anyone wanted to put stuff in the temple, and they complained to Rome and said, Who, what is this governor doing? And so the, they reprimanded Pilate, don't, ooh, don't do that. Do not upset the Jews. They do not tolerate idolatry. We've given them some freedom on a leash to do, have jurisdiction over the temple and the temple grounds and how they worship. Don't tamper with that. So Pilate learned the hard way. So maybe Festus knows this, but anyway, he's coming in, cold turkey, He is vulnerable. And the leadership of the Jews in Jerusalem, they know that. Oh, we've got a new... They've been sitting around waiting, twiddling their thumbs for two years. Man, when is this Felix guy ever going to let Paul out and render a verdict? And 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 eventually it was clear, Felix isn't going to do it. That's why they didn't do anything. So when they heard that there was a changing of the guard and a new governor, Festus, it's like, man, we are going to jump all over that. And they did. Festus, therefore, having arrived in the province... Three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. This is amazing. He gets appointed in that area as governor. He's at Caesarea, his headquarters, and within three days only he goes down to Jerusalem. That's how he knows uh, I've got to learn who these Jewish Sanhedrin members are. They are very important in this area, and so that's what he does. So that's very strategic. Festus ruled for 2 years from 59 to 61 AD and then apparently died in office. Josephus, Josephus I already mentioned this. Josephus mentions Festus and said that he was actually better than Felix. He was more just, level-headed, and he was better than the guy that came after him, Albinus. So from Josephus's perspective and testimony, Festus wasn't all that bad. Not a major compromiser. He's not perfect, but that was the testimony given. It was interesting that we heard he uh Romans 13 read earlier, Festus, being a governor, actually got to that position because God put him there as governor. God did. Festus was a pagan. He was an unbeliever. He was morally corrupt. No doubt he compromised. He was self-serving. There were a lot of bad things about Festus in terms of his character and not being saved. Nevertheless, God put him there to rule. God placed him there, Romans 13 says. In verse 4 in Romans 13, it even says that he was a servant on behalf of God to rule over people, even though he was not a Christian, and that's the way he was to be viewed. The Apostle Paul understands Romans 13 because the Apostle Paul wrote Romans 13, and he knows he needs to honor the king, submit to authority. I don't know this Festus guy, don't know a lot of where he came from, don't know how he's going to rule. I know he's a pagan, he's committed to Caesar, that can't be good, but I will honor him as the man that God has put in that position of authority, and that's how Paul conducts himself. He's consistent in that, and we'll see that in this passage. So, there's the judge, Festus. Hopefully he'll be better than Felix. Then there's the prosecution. So Festus goes up to Jerusalem. He's been there three days, and no doubt the leadership in Jerusalem hears about that, and so they just flock to the new governor. These Jews who are the leadership, who are influential, who hate Paul. Two years later. The number one thing on their agenda is we need to kill Paul, two years later. That, that is utter, bitter hatred to the worst degree, that, that a human being could have such hatred. It didn't t- dissipate with time, and that's what happens. People who have hatred in their heart, and they nurture it, it grows it gets worse, it spreads like cancer, it affects every part of their being, and they become hell-bent on murder, and they act it out. And that's what these guys have been doing for two years. They've got one agenda. We need to have Paul killed. That's what's driving these men. Uh, So, let's look at the the prosecution. That's verses 2 to 5. So, the new governor Festus arrives in Jerusalem, and the chief priests, remember they were involved, Ananias and the chief the leadership of the Sanhedrin. They were the ones, the chief priests, the one that had Paul punched in the face in the courtroom. And the leading men of the Jews, so this is, this is the leadership of the Sanhedrin. It's the same guys. Also, leading men of the Jews, verse 2, no doubt that includes some of those, four, remember uh, two years before we saw in Acts, I think it was 23, where 40 Jews came up with a plot to overcome the Apostle Paul and just kill him on the spot. And it said they took a vow that they would neither eat nor drink till Paul was dead. Now, here it is two years later. I, what became of those guys? I always wondered. They must be really anorexic by now. Because it has been two years, and when a Jew took a vow and he meant it, he kept that vow. These are really skinny guys. Unless they died off and there's a new breed. Ah, but knowing them, the hypocrites that they are, they changed the rules because they were good at that. Oh, here was the exception. Jesus even talked about that. They make a vow and they don't stick with it. Jesus rebuked them in the Gospels for that. Total hypocrites. You make vows before God and you don't honor your vow. Well, that's what these guys did. So, that was probably 40 of these guys. So, they haven't changed. And that's this is just indicative of the human heart and how horrible uh, and destructive sin can be. Is They want to kill Paul. They want to murder And they're festering on this for two years, and they have utter hatred boiling over in their heart, and they want to act it out again, and they want to manipulate this new governor so that they can kill Paul. So, uh, the chief priests, the leading men of the Jews, brought charges against Paul. So, they, they hunt down Festus, and they brought charges. Brought, they were horrible charges. Uh, verse 15 says they were charges that warranted the death penalty. So, they went to Festus and said, you need to, you've got a prisoner. He's been there for two years. His name is Paul. Uh, he's a sectarian, he's sacrilegious, he's a blasphemer, and he's an insurrectionist, and he deserves death. That's what they were saying. They were just repeating their three charges. It warrants the death penalty. Now, had they just said two of those three charges of he's a sectarian, meaning he's a, a weird cultist and has twisted the Jewish religion. If he said just that charge, or he said, and he's a blasphemer because he defiled the temple. If he said only those two, uh, Festus would be like, so what? That's your problem. That's an in-house intramural debate between Jews. I have nothing to do with that. You settle that. That's what Galileo determined. Same thing. But because they brought in the charge of sedition, overthrowing the government, creating tumult all over uh, the Roman Empire with Gentile or, or Jewish people, that caught Festus's ear, oh, whoa, that's a crime against Rome. Wow, I remember when I left and they commissioned me and they said, Whatever you do, don't allow an insurrection or sedition. Whatever you do. And the first thing he hears when he gets here is, Here is a Jew creating insurrection against Rome. That got Festus's attention. And so they, these charges that were very severe they brought against Paul and they were urging Festus, requesting a concession or favor against Paul. They were asking for a favor. That's what it means. They're pleading for a favor against not they aren't pleading for justice regarding Paul. Isn't that interesting? You're a judge, we want justice in this case. It's no. You're a judge, we want a favor. We want him dead. That's what that means. Requesting a concession against Paul. Well, what was the favor? Well, that Festus might have Paul brought down from Caesarea 60 miles to Jerusalem in our backyard, in our neighborhood, so we can take him out. They didn't tell him that, but that's what they wanted to do. That was their plan. Uh, at the same time, setting an ambush to kill him on the way, which is the exact same thing they tried two years before. Two years before. Uh, and then it was, remember, it was Paul's sister's son, so it was Paul's nephew who caught wind of the plan that these 40 Jews wanted to kill Paul and ambush him. And so, uh, Lysias, the... Roman centurion, or a Chiliarch, he, he panicked. Man, they want to kill. And it was only 40 Jews, but Lysias, as a Roman, he knew the history of the Jews and how they could create a tremendous tumult with just a few people. And so, he has an army of 470 armed Roman soldiers to protect Paul. That's what a, how panicked he was. So, no doubt, Festus is the same way, major panic. they're going to have an ambush. Uh, verse 4, Festus then answered, well, Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea and that he himself was about to, oh, and, and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, Festus says, let the influential men among you here Jews uh, go up back to Caesarea with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. Now, this is a, a good rendering or decision that Festus makes, being confronted with this spontaneously. He actually made a legitimate suggestion. Oh, okay. You got to complain about this guy. He's up there in Caesarea. That's in my jurisdiction. Then why don't you come up there, legitimate people, and bring, and I will be the judge and we'll have a court there and you can bring your charges and we'll do it there. That was totally legit. But he's going to waver and he's going to cave. He's going to be inconsistent. He also is going to lack courage in implementing that just scenario. So, the prosecution, it was the Jewish chief priests, chief priests, the leadership of the Jews that hated Paul. Let's go on to number three. Uh, so, they have their their court session, and there are charges, and they are damning and false. They are damning and false. They are severe. They warrant, according to the Jews, the death penalty. Paul should These are capital crimes, and Paul should be killed for them. Verse 6 and 7, and after he had spent Not more than eight or ten days. So, Festus goes there. He meets these influential Jews who hate Paul and Christians with a passion, and Jesus can't stand what they teach. By the way, why is Paul arrested? Why did he get arrested? What's his crime? Why is he in jail? We need to be reminded of that. Because he's a Christian, because he loves Jesus, because he repented of his sins, because he wants to live a holy life, because he wants to be a blessing to society, because he wants to honor God the Creator, because he loves people, because he loves people who are not like him, because he loves Gentiles, because he loves Jews. Because he wants to give them truth and set them free and liberate them with the gospel. He wants everybody to embrace Jesus Christ. That's his crime. And that's why he keeps saying, I am on trial for the resurrection. Then he modifies it the second time and he says, I am on trial this day for the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Wow. Wow. Resurrection, resurrection truth. We talked about how resurrection is a distinctive Christian biblical truth. Other religions of the world and ideologies, they don't have it. They don't believe. Because the, the, the idea of resurrection doctrine cannot be invented or made up by the mind of man. The only reason we believe in resurrection and know about it is because it came from the Bible. That is its source. And it came from God. And that is reality. And that's what happens when people die. There is no reincarnation, there is no soul sleep. There is no uh, dissipating into the oneness of the universe. There is no non-existence, transmigration of the soul. These are all false, heretical, hellish ideologies. The truth is, when you die, according to Hebrews 9, you immediate, your soul, you immediately are confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the judge. He is the only judge. God the Father has given all judgment to the Son, John chapter 5. And the Lord Jesus will immediately render a verdict. And it's based on one thing. Did you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ or not? Did you believe that you were a sinner who needed to be saved? You were an enemy of God, separated from God, and your only hope was in Jesus Christ the God-man who got crucified and punished by the Father on your behalf He was buried, he rose again from the dead, ascended back into heaven. Now he reigns as judge over the earth and even the judge of your soul. And that you cannot save yourself with good works and doing good things, that is impossible. It is only by the work of God and it is by grace through faith. That is the judgment and that is the only judgment and the only litmus test that every human soul has to face when they die and it is immediate upon death. You breathe your last, you are before the courtroom of Jesus Christ as Lord. And you are either rendered guilty or innocent. And immediately, you either go to darkness and judgment, or you go to the bliss of heaven being in the presence of Jesus Christ, God the Father, and all the saints of all the ages and all the holy angels. That is clearly what the Bible teaches, and that's true of every one of us. When we die and breathe our last, that's where we're going. Before Jesus Christ and then heaven or hell. And that is the message that Paul preached. And that's why he was despised and hated so much. Because people don't want to hear about their sin. Don't tell me I'm a sinner. Don't tell me I deserve judgment. Don't tell me I'm an enemy of my creator. Don't tell me I can't save myself. Don't tell me that. And they get they get enraged. I need, we need to silence this mouthpiece in this message. It is so narrow. It is so confrontational, and it's an affront to to human people, telling us we are not good by nature. So that was true 2,000 years ago. It's true today. Talk to unbelievers, they get angry unless God softens their heart and they repent and believe. So Paul was on trial. He was a prisoner because he came with the gospel message. Gospel means good news. Paul, I have good news. I have good news for you. I can't believe you Christians. It's all bad news and hell and brimstone and fire and judgment. It's so depressing. No, it's the the good news. Are you listening? The solution to the problem. The only solution. Guaranteed. You don't have to do anything. You just have to believe. Rest in God. It's really quite simple. Forgiveness in this life that extends into all eternity. That is good news. That's why he is on trial. That's why sinners hate Christians. So, verse back to verse 6, and after he had spent uh, not more than 8 or 10 days among them. So, this was a problem. So, they're hanging out with him, and then they win him over. He has now changed his mind. He has flip-flopped as Festus. He made a good ruling. Here's what we're going to do. This is the right way to do it. This is justice. And in the course of 8 to 10 days, they were able to manipulate him and change his thinking. That is not a just judge. Spent 10 days among them, then he went up back up to Caesarea. He's changed his mind. And on the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal, the bema chair, the bema seat. It's literally the Greek word, the Bematos, toss, and ordered Paul to be brought. So now we're going to have our trial. Okay, bring in the defense. So Paul was brought into the courtroom. He's sitting literally on a tribunal where he renders judgments and and makes assessments as judge. Verse 7, and after he had arrived, the Jews who had come down, so the Jews agree, they come down uh, to Caesarea from Jerusalem, and they stood around him. Verse 7, after Paul had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. In the Greek text, they literally, they came into the courtroom, there's Paul standing up as (laughs) the guilty, so charged, and it says the Jews surrounded him that's the imagery. In the courtroom, like a pack of wolves who are about to attack a wounded deer who is helpless, that's what they are. So, literally surrounded him, verse 7, bringing many and serious charges against him. It says serious because they were saying these require capital punishment, the death penalty, this man needs to die, Festus. If you want to do justice, if you want to satisfy Caesar, if you want to appease Roman law, here's what you are required to do. They're arguing their case. Problem at the end of verse 7, they couldn't prove any of it. Zero evidence. Zero eyewitnesses. That was a problem. And Festus knew it. He knew, Wow. Okay, here's your charges. Wait, okay, where's the evidence? Wait, you don't have any... Where's the evidence? There's no evidence. That's why at the end of chapter 26, uh, eventually... Festus says in verse 31, this man is not… Paul, after hearing the trial, hearing the evidence, Festus concluded, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. That's what he finally decided. Damning charges. Uh, Number four, then the defense. But then Paul gets to speak after they've surrounded him like a pack of hyenas, ready to pounce. He he is amazing. He is is not… Operating on human strength, he's operating on the strength of the Holy Spirit, probably praying to himself in his own mind and heart spontaneously right there on the spot. Like Nehemiah did, I love that prayer in Nehemiah in the Old Testament. It's the shortest, fastest prayer in the Bible. And Nehemiah uh, was a servant to the king, and the king could have his head cut off at any moment, at any moment, if he just felt like it, if if Nehemiah breathed the wrong way or wasn't smiling, off with his head. And so the king actually asked Nehemiah, so... Why is your discountenance low? Why, why are you not smiling, Nehemiah? And then the passage says that Nehemiah said a prayer of help to God, and then he answered. Wow, that was a millisecond prayer. Dear God, help me. I'm about to take the king. I don't want to get my head cut off. In Jesus' name, amen. And God answered his prayer, gave him wisdom, and it appeased the king. That was in Nehemiah. That's awesome. Same thing with Paul. Here he is standing around with the pack of wolves. They're attacking him. He needs to die, pointing the fingers. He's outnumbered. He doesn't know anything about this new governor. And yet he is, no doubt, calm and has composure because he remembers the promise from Jesus, I will be with you. You you must witness on my behalf before kings, governors, while you suffer. So the Holy Spirit of God overcame Paul and helped him. And that's what the Holy Spirit does, right? When we are at rock bottom and we can't do it in our own, The Holy Spirit helps us. When we we need strength, that's when God is there for us. When we have no strength, He is our strength. God is at His best when we are at our lowest as believers. And we can never imagine being in that scenario. Man, if I was in that scenario, I I couldn't live anymore if that happened to me. I couldn't go on another day if that happened to me. And then you're in that situation, and as a Christian, you realize, wow, I can't believe that I'm going on. God, you are so gracious. And that's God's promise, and that's what He's doing for Paul here. Imagine being in this scenario. Totally unjust. Number four, the defense. Paul speaks truth with courage. Very simple. His his approach in every trial that he's been on is very simple. I'm just going to tell the truth. And when they say something wrong, I'm going to say, that is not true. Paul did this, and he just says, I did not do that. And that's what we need to do, and that's what he does here. So while Paul, so they surround him. They couldn't prove it. And while Paul, verse 8 Said in his own defense, his own apologia. Now he's doing apologetics. Literally, that's the word apologia. He's he's going to do apologetics. First Peter three fifteen. This is exactly what Peter said to do. He didn't say quote Aristotle and some philosophical axiom and knock them out with your intellectual acuity. Uh, no. It's like give my testimony and tell them about Jesus, and and just tell them the simple truth. That's his apologia. That's his apologetic. That's what apologetics is, defending the faith on a personal level about the truth of the gospel and Jesus using the Bible. So, Paul does his apologetics and he says, I have committed no offense. So, there it is, he's just speaking truth. I have committed no offense, and he, he addresses all three charges again. He's already done this. I have committed no offense against the law, so I'm not a sectarian, what they call me, heresy, heretic was the word, Greek word sectarian, heretic, I am not a heretic of the Jews and the law, number one, I didn't sin against the temple, that was sacrilege, and then number three, and I am not into sedition, which was a sin against or a crime against Rome and the state. And that third one is the one that got uh, Festus's attention because he was a Roman. As a matter of fact, had Paul not been charged with that last one, uh, Festus probably would have just said, forget it. This case is closed. Verse 9, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor. There it is. See, he changed his mind. He got swayed. He got manipulated. Wishing to do the Jews a favor. That is the exact same phrase in verse 27 where it says about Felix. Uh, Felix didn't let Paul out. He put him in prison for two years. Wishing to do the Jews a favor. Felix, the governor, who has all authority and power, he has jurisdiction, and he's afraid of these men. Same thing with Festus. Coward. Wishing to do the Jews a favor. It's sad that politicians do that. Every politician, ruler, king, governor, mayor, is put in that position of authority by God himself and God's intent that they would serve the people with justice. But because sin was what it is with human beings, it is so often so easy to become totally self-centered and you abuse the power that's been delegated to you as a ruler and you're not doing it in the best interest of the people. That's what happened to Philip. He got sucked in, wishing to do the Jews a favor, wishing to do the hateful, murderous Jews a favor against innocent apostle Paul, who loved people and loved God and had the good news, answered Paul and said, get this, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? Whoa, wait a minute. You already said if there was a trial, it's going to be in Caesarea. That was your jurisdiction. We already had a trial. You heard the facts. You heard my testimony. There is no proof. And you're suggesting we have another trial back in their neighborhood in Jerusalem where I can be ambushed and killed, where I got punched in the face already. I was already on trial before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And the Pharisees concluded, I was not guilty. That was their official rendering. The Pharisees among the Sanhedrin. We find no fault in him. A rendering has already been given to you and to Rome. Lysias, the commander, wrote that letter to Felix. I find no fault worthy of imprisonment or death in this man. It's already been declared. Felix already declared, I was not guilty. So you can just see him crumbling, cowering. Frail, compromising judge. But Festus wishing to... uh, Jews, a favor, answered Paul and said, "Are you, are you willing to go uh, up there, down to Jerusalem?" And Paul said in verse 10, "Paul's had it." Okay. It's been two years. I went through all that other stuff. I, I subjected myself uh, to the crowd. I got beat up. I spoke up, and then the Chiliarch was about to whip me, and then I subjected myself to the Sanhedrin trial, and I spoke there, and they said I wasn't guilty, and then I willingly came up here to Caesarea, and I spoke before Felix over and over and over and over and over and over and over again to him and his wife who were trying to bribe me for two years. I didn't complain. I've been sitting in that prison for two years waiting for justice, praying to God, I subjected myself one more time to another trial before you went over the same routine, all the same accusations, my same defense, and now you want to do it one more time? No way, Paul. That's it. Paul, that's why Paul says in verse ten, "I am standing before Caesar's tribunal." In other words, this is the high. If you go to Jerusalem, you're going down in terms of authority. You're not elevating the case; it's going backwards. This is Caesar's representative tribunal. It's right here. This is the highest authority in the land, save Rome. Can't go backwards. It doesn't work that way. It always is elevated upward. That's what he's telling them. And Festus knows this is true. Uh, So I'm standing here before Caesar's tribunal, the very authority of Rome. You could make a rendering and settle this case once and for all where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, and you also very well know. You know. Now he is guilty. Verse 11, and if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. That's amazing. Paul was a man of integrity and truth before God. If I'm guilty, kill me. I believe in the law. I believe I support the law of the land. I am a law obeyer. I submit to the law, not a law breaker. And that should be the worldview of a Christian. Christians should be known by submitting to authority and also... Affirming the law of the land because that's what the Bible says to do in Peter and Romans. We believe in the laws of the land and we submit them as long as they don't conflict blatantly with the Bible. And so Paul admits that. Uh, then I should die. But if none of those things are true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. No one can do it. So Paul's actually taking control. He's taken over. He's now the judge. This is the way it needs to go. I am not guilty. They are liars. Uh, You know it. This is the proper authority. Happened right here. We're not going to do a lower trial and go backwards. If anything, we're moving forward. You know the facts. You should have rendered properly. These guys can't do anything to me whatsoever because they have no evidence, and you know it. Therefore, I appeal to Caesar. I appeal. This was totally legitimate. Some people will say, total, total pacifists uh, who are Christian will say, well, you can never go to court for anything. You can never uh, go to the law for anything. You can never call a cop for anything. You can never secure a lawyer for anything. You can never go to trial for anything. That's not true. There are boundaries. Paul said, don't sue other Christians. Yeah, that's out of it. But there are other forms and legitimate ways you can use the law to your advantage in keeping with truth to try to secure justice, and that is exactly what Paul is doing. He was a Roman citizen. He had a right, which made him unique, by the way. Not everybody was a Roman citizen. That was hard to get citizenship. Most people were slaves. You either had to be born privileged to be a citizen of Rome, and it was very rare, especially in these parts where he was not in Rome. So it was very rare that somebody living here would actually be a Roman citizen. Roman citizens had special rights and privileges, legally speaking. They could not be subjected to the death penalty. They couldn't even be going to court and given a rendering of any kind of judgment without a fair trial. They could appeal. Normal Romans could not appeal. Provincial Romans could not appeal. They couldn't do that. Very few people could actually appeal to Caesar. This was very rare. Paul knows. He is informed. He knows his rights. He knows the law. He was trained as a lawyer. So go to verse 12, he appeals to Caesar, Uh, number five, the verdict appealed to Caesar in Rome. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, so Festus confers with his counsel, wait a minute, he just appealed to Caesar, whoa, that doesn't happen very often, it may have never happened to Festus before, I just got here two weeks ago. And you're appealing to Caesar. Wait, aren't you Jewish? How can you can't appeal to Caesar? Wait, only, wait, only Roman citizens can. Are, wait, are you a Roman citizen? Where were you born? Where do you? That's why Felix asked Paul first thing. Wait, where were you born? Where are you from? Because he was trying to establish the jurisdiction and his rights. Festus didn't do that. That's why. So he confers to his counselor. These are Roman counselors. Okay, wait a minute, and they have a huddle. Here's the deal. Here's what I know about Paul. Can you go search the records? Can you read Lysias' letter? Can you get any transcripts from Felix the knucklehead and so we can get some information and make a decision here? And they find out that indeed Paul is a legitimate Roman citizen and he has legal recourse and right to appeal to Caesar, the highest in the land. Very rare privilege, and it is granted to him. This is amazing. This is the sovereign intervention of God providentially on behalf of Paul. Fulfilling a heart's desire that he had years ago, where Paul was saying, uh, years ago, he was saying, I, I want to go to Rome. I want to go to Rome. And he was telling other Christians, I'm going to collect a bunch of money. I'm going to help those in Jerusalem. I'm going to collect money from the Macedonians. And then I'm going to go to Jerusalem, relieve them. And then I'm going to go to Rome. I want to go to Rome. And then he's writing the Romans before he gets there and he says, I'm coming to you. I want to come preach the gospel to you too. I'm coming to Rome. I'm coming to Rome. Well, Paul, your prayer is about to get answered. You're going to Rome, but you're going as a prisoner. You're going to Rome, but you're going chained. This is not how Paul was thinking he's going to Rome. Be careful what you pray for, where you want to go, what you want to do. God might say, okay, yeah, and it'll be maybe under circumstances you weren't even anticipating. So God is definitely going to send Paul to Rome, but he's going in chains. So, Festus confers with his men, his counsel. They make a decision. He answered, you have appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar you shall go. Now, once that decision had been rendered, Paul should have been quarantined and then no more trials. Unfortunately, justice is botched because he's subjected to one more trial right there in Caesarea before another corrupt ruler, Agrippa, and we're going to see that in a second. But at least Festus is going to honor this, and he is going to send him to Rome. And one thing that Festus is to be given credit for is he didn't procrastinate. He, he was a decision maker. So, we, okay, well, we need to have the trial. You come up there. We need to do it. Okay, we need to make a decision. Let me confer. Okay, here's my decision. Okay, here's what we need to do next. So, that was in huge contrast to Felix. So, a couple of takeaways as we close, practically, is we are like the Apostle Paul in that we have the greatest message and the greatest treasure in the world, that we are, number one, Privilege to live by, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Saved by grace through faith, through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, who uh, caused us to be born again. He gave us His Spirit, forgave all of our sins, adopted us into the family of God, gave us the gift of prayer, the gift of the body of Christ, fellow believers. What a treasure, the family of God. But we're also commissioned to take that message wherever we go, and we should expect at times resistance. Mockery, rejection, name-calling, and in some cases, people get physical in their hostility, and and that's happening to some Christians in the world. So, also a good reminder is how we should view government and those that are in power. Romans thirteen. We need to keep, be, keep coming back to it. God put those people in charge. Well, I don't like who the president is. Well, God put him there. I don't like who the governor is. Well, God put him there. I don't like who our senators are. Well, God put them there. And 1 Timothy two says, pray for them. Pray for them. I hate them. God says pray for them. If you start praying for somebody very specifically, your heart of hate will amazingly soften and change, if you're really a Christian, because that's what the Spirit of God does through prayer. It's amazing. So there are many lessons, and those are very practical in light of what's going on in our world today. So let's be people of prayer who love people And with courage, go out and share the gospel so that some might be saved. With that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank You for our time together. Again, it's always a privilege to to be in Your Word, and we trust being taught by You, the Holy Spirit, to open our eyes to understand Scripture, to pull away the practical principles, and then with Your help, apply it to our life, to change our thinking so that our living might follow suit, so that we might please You more and more in how we live our life. That's our heart's desire. We thank You for this time together. We pray in Christ's name. And Father, I do, I want to pray for uh, the leaders of our country right now. I want to pray for uh, our president, all of his assistants. I want to pray for the governor of the state of California, Lord, and the two senators that we have, uh, the mayor of our city, and everyone who is in power. And our prayer is that You would move on their hearts, reminding those people that they are to serve You and serve the people and serve justice. And I pray that you uh, bring that immediately to their conscience and that you bring people into their path and in their way that might point to Romans 13 on their behalf. And we trust you for that. Uh, we pray it all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. And just by way of reminder, this is a fifth Sunday that happens four times a year and it's a time where we take a special offering of benevolence. So if you got any pennies in your pocket or whatever you'd like to contribute to that uh The baskets will be coming around, and that's what that is for God bless you. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.